this Thursday, November 21st, San Francisco. Come out to Book Passage. I'm going to be doing a book event. I'm going to read some from Now Was The Way. I'll do a signing, a Q&A. I have a lot of questions for all of you, so be prepared to answer my questions. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Come on out this Thursday, November 21st at 6 p.m. at the Book Passage Ferry Building. I look forward to seeing you. Hey, what's going on, my friends? Welcome to the Astro Hustle. I'm Corey Allen. Hope that you're doing well today. Hope that you're feeling right today. Uh, hey, and if you're not, it's going to get better with this podcast. Uh, my guests today on the show are Dr. Dan Engel and Dr. Joshua Flowers. Together in Colorado, they're doing really great work. And to me, they really seem to be on the cutting edge of integrating everything that we know about medical science and putting it all together along with new techniques to bring rise to a new form of healing. So we have a great chat, cover all sorts of wonderful things, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Hey, if you have just a moment, it would be really helpful to me if you go over to iTunes, give the Ask Russell a five-star rating, don't even worry about a review, just hit the quick five stars, it's very useful, helps the show continue to grow, bring in the guests, all that good type of thing. Thank you so much for doing that, I truly appreciate it. All right, the time is now. Let's go do it. Let's go talk to the innovative healing wonder wizards, Dr. Dan Engel and Dr. Joshua Flowers. So, all right, here's one thing that I have been thinking about, and I think that you two fellas are uh, quite well equipped or overly equipped to to talk about this, is that, you know, in the in headlines, like one of the things that we see in, in listeners of the show, and I think just most people in general are becoming more and more aware of psychedelics, um, you know, psilocybin, ketamine becoming very formative tools and recognized as, you know, medically relevant and treating a whole host of ailments. Um, If you all would just take that from the most basic level of why that's becoming more acceptable, what the functionality of those things are, and why the, you know, industry of medicine is beginning to recognize those things as uh, useful medicines? Mm. Well, the particularly the psychiatric medical field is going through a huge potential revolution through the use of these medicines in the clinical construct. And the data is really good. And anytime you look at the data, it's so compelling that it draws interest, even from the most hardened skeptics. So during a time when we have more and more of these psychiatric epidemics, depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and pain, at ever-increasingly escalating numbers, even with the advent of psychopharmacology and all these fancy pharmaceuticals, it's obvious that those aren't the solution. They can be helpful as a tool and an agent to subdue crisis level symptoms, but they're not going to get to the root cause. And many of these tools in the psychedelic medicine arena do get to the root cause. So the medical establishment is finding more and more curiosity, agency, and license to be able to promote the right use of these medicines. And the cultural revolution now coming back into an appreciation of these medicines that were really coming on the forefront in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is largely uh, twofold. One is that people are interested in having self-transcendent experiences because they're wanting to explore their own consciousness. They're wanting to see what else is across the veil 
or um, they've reached a level of success in their lives and they're still feeling somewhat empty. So this is more of an optimization kind of arena. And then also in the just general client demographic or, or person going through a healing process, um, from the felt experience, depression sucks, really difficult to treat. Obsessive compulsive disorder sucks. PTSD sucks. Addictions, addiction, regardless of what you're addicted to, sucks. So the felt experience of having one of those disease clusters or symptom experiences is driving people's curiosity to use novel therapeutics because they've heard of the benefit and the likely for success with the relatively small chance for downside. So you've got the medical industry, you've got the general cultural consciousness, and you've got tools that are helpful for both optimization and healing. So it's just stimulating this massive, massive curiosity and reinterest in the field. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some of the general elements that have begun to really surface a lot in our society. Uh, I, I, in, you know, in my view, even over the last five years, things like depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, and, and what have you have exponentially growth. You know, I saw that I was reading a thing just the other day that I think suicide rates have doubled in ages 18 to 24 over the last, uh, just handful of years. Mm -hmm. I have looked into that as much as any, uh, you know, layman, I suppose could, um, because it's one of those things like what is causing this, schism in our culture that are creating all these symptoms what is the root cause of this stuff not the not the fix per se but like just thinking about why given that you two guys are are deep into this world and it's your uh it is your art why do you think that those uh ailments have become so intense in our society over the last handful of years it's it's a really good question and once we get to the heartbeat of that question we're gonna really shine a light on things that are beyond just the individual experience mm -hmm. there we we're under we're under a current administration that's very polarizing and not to say that you agree or not agree with the current administration it's not that's not the, really the heart of it the heart of it is it's a very polarizing time to be an American, to be under the busyness of the Western mind, to continue to accelerate our demand for natural resources, outpacing the sustainability and, and the, the product line. Uh, you've got a lot of cultural crisis, global crisis that are, that are happening. And you've got people that are starting to raise up and rise up and say, what has been happening that's out of alignment is no longer acceptable. Even to the fact that you, there was a young Swedish 16-year-old that was speaking in front of the Senate uh, Environmental Committee, essentially shaking her finger at all the adults that are making these decisions, saying, why are you not paying attention to the data? And you're going to screw up this whole thing, and we're going to have to pick up your mess. <laughs> and it was a really great wake-up call. Uh, when you get scolded by the younger generation for being absent-minded and how you're taking care of the current house mm -hmm. and cleaning up after yourself. And are, are we going to leave the natural environment and the financial system and the medical system and the agricultural system and the legal system and the political system and like, all the major institutions, are we going to leave them better than we found them? 
or are they going to be more broken and in dire need of more um, attention and revolutionary change? So I think there's a crisis that's happening in all major sectors globally that is stimulating this next phase of transformation. Robert Mark Hubbard uh, is really fond of saying, I was saying this for a while, and, I, and then I heard she was saying it for even longer, so I think she probably is the first one to say it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'll quote her, that crisis precedes transformation every time. And I think that's true. The crisis are what motivates us for change, and we tend to get lackadaisical until something really gets out of balance and we have to pay attention. So I think there's this really in- level, this is great level of intensity. It's intense to be a human on the planet right now. Uh, it's also a great opportunity to take inventory. Uh, what's in alignment for our own lives? Are we acting in alignment or out of alignment with one another, with the planet, with our soul's mission, so to speak, and what we're here to do? And if we're not in alignment, then we need to wake up and bring everything back into alignment as best we can. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is that there seems to be this war for subjectivity right now. You know, whenever you see this 16-year-old Swedish young lady coming to uh, the summit and, and raising all the important environmental points that you mentioned, then you see on the internet, you know, pictures of a truck where someone has a rebel flag and they've written fuck Greta on the back of their windshield. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, that is a cultural symptom to me of a war for subjectivity. People are because of the internet and the fact that we've had so much information about consciousness and about really ultimately in my opinion, I, th- I feel like the internet, the connectivity of it through all the data has overwhelmed every human with uh, an existential awareness that no one was trained or prepared to deal with, or most, you know, 99.9% of people were not trained and ready to deal with. So they're seeing an infinity of conflicting reality tunnels. And oftentimes, you know, people that have the least amount of self-awareness are most insulated in their genetic and cultural, small cultural uh, reinforcements. So they're like holding on to dear life of this tiny, tiny little narrow way of seeing the world. And everything that's outside of that is not only incorrect and should be, uh, you know, made fun of as an act of defense, but it's also a threat, you know? And so it's a strange time, you know, as you said, it's a really strange time. And that all of the, the, as, uh, I tend to like to think about it, like the, the social, the, um, intersubjective agreement of humanity, that all of our minds, we agree, okay, you know, this is the way things are. It's getting pulled and tested by this wave of existential resonance that's moving through our species right now. Um, so say that, and I, I do think that that's why, you know, in my opinion, why this depressions and anxieties are coming because people are living in a world that they can't understand and it's shifting and they're feeling more overwhelmed by conflicting information with their own reality while simultaneously more isolated from other humans, you know, and with less physical tribal connectivity that we need on a physiological level. Um, so now back to kind of the other half of that previous question, how... Do you see something like uh, th- these therapeutic ketamine treatments, these therapeutic psilocybin treatments helping with this wave crest that seems to be happening right now? Yeah, that's a 
good examination into the therapeutics that we have available for interrupting the cycle of apathy, disconnection, confusion, overwhelm. You know, when the ego is overwhelmed in its ability to deal with the situation, like you, you, you said, I think you said it quite well, which is we're facing problems we've never faced before. Our nervous systems are stressed in ways they've never been stressed before. And the, the ego can have a really hard time trying to wrestle with its known reality, exhausting its options and how to deal with the situation. And you have something like ketamine that can come in and interrupt that cycle. Psilocybin can come in and interrupt that cycle. Transcranial magnetic stimulation can come in and, and support hypo function in the central nervous system and or in the brain with like low level function that can happen from direct neurological injury. And it can also happen from a chronic experience of stress and overwhelm that feels paralyzing in knowing how to deal with the current landscape of stressors that are, that we face on a daily basis. So if we have tools to correct the hardware issues and we have tools to uplevel the software issue, then oftentimes that's giving us more energy, more hope, more optimism, more psychic and neurologic bandwidth and capacity to actually deal with the situations at hand. None of these tools are going to fix the situation, but these tools give us more agency and more of a, a ability to strategically participate in problem solving the situations that are novel and new and are actually an opportunity. Anytime we can train, we can shift crisis into an opportunity. That's just a matter of perspective, but it's also a matter of resource. It's hard to go into opportunity from crisis if you don't have resource. So oftentimes these neurologic and psychological tools are, are very much the agents that help us gain uh, more resources to deal with situations that um, are going to continue to overwhelm our systems until we look at the causative factors and deal with things at the root level. And this is part of the reason why psychopharmacology is only good for a period of time because it, it subdues symptoms, it represses symptoms, which can help people get over the crisis. But if you don't deal with the root causes, then you're gonna have to you're gonna have to look at that hard mirror or in that shadow at some point. Yeah, for sure. That's that's a, the American way is put a band aid on a bullet hole and make sure that you're the person that owns the band aid company. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, whenever we look at these patients, as Dan mentioned, alignment. There's multiple levels of of alignment, and we look at people's psychology and their their energy their um neurology their metabolic all of these things are, are big factors that can be driven by by their psyche or be driven by stress uh or be driven by trauma uh both either physical or mental um you know all of these different factors can drive drive a patient um, into a really downward spiral and without really addressing the psychological traumas um, or, you know, being able to kind of unpeel the, the psyche, um, you know, before with pharmaceutical, uh, you know, SSRIs and different antidepressant medications, 
we were trying to kind of reset the neurochemistry. What's really interesting with um, ketamine especially is being able to get a break from the cycle that's going on over and over again in that patient's psyche, whether it's a perseveration cycle or a pain cycle or a depression cycle. It's causing a break versus, oh, we're just going to mask it and chemically try to change it. Um, it's, you know, it's nice to see um, a reset. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of those things that's so crucial to me, I think, in anyone's healing is getting a taste in, of what the other side of the the calcification of their ailment is you know if someone is in a in poor physical health due to diet getting them to eat well for even a couple of days you say hey, you know you feel a little bit lighter a little bit better a little bit more clear-minded a little bit more energy now think of that you know you could 10x that you could 20x that you could if you continue in, in this new habituation of positive patterns and habits and i think uh we often forget you know culturally we often forget that depression anxiety and, and those type of things are very similar and that you know someone their world begins to dim into this this um you know pit of depression and it's so uh one of the beautiful ways i've heard it phrased is being able to put enough positive things alongside the negative flow of consciousness to then just help build this positive scaffolding that then can give someone just a, a, a taste of what their life could be like without that and then it gives them the will and kind of the inspiration and help that may be needed the encouragement to start moving forward into a world that they might have started to believe wasn't possible to live in anymore so you guys have i've heard uh, i think dan i heard you say one time this term i really loved which is full spectrum healing um could you just point out and kind of describe to me what a full spectrum healed person looks like inside and out mm. Yeah, I love that the nature of that question. And it's a bit like reading about sex and then having sex. You know, we can talk about it intellectually and then the, the felt experience of, of being a more whole human is oftentimes so revolutionary. Somebody's awareness field that they didn't know it was possible. Like Albert Einstein said, we can't solve a problem using the same consciousness that created it. So if we have a same kind of mindset that's been our status quo and operating system up to a period of time, and then you get a significantly up-leveled operating system after that, oftentimes you're working at a completely different frame of reality. So if we look at a full-spectrum healing process, that is looking at all aspects of being, body, mind, heart, and soul, soul slash spirit. And if we understand that people can come in with a psychosomatic experience presenting as heart disease, chronic inflammatory condition, irritable bowel syndrome, et cetera, the causative factor of that might be on the emotional landscape or on the mental landscape or even at the level of soul or spirit. The body just happens to be how it's expressed. Mm -hmm. So if we're just looking at the body, which is what five of the six primary medical disciplines look at, allopathic medical disciplines look at, surgery, OB-GYN, family practice, internal medicine, pediatrics. Uh, those five disciplines are primarily body-based. Psychiatry, psyche means soul. And, and we as psychiatrists, we should be looking at the levels of soul and spirit and deeper aspects of being. 
But the psychiatric community is largely sold out to the pharmaceutical industry with this whole hope that that minute changes in neurochemical profiles in pharmaceutical agents were going to be the thing that saved the day. And it's not. Pharmaceuticals aren't here to fix us and psychedelics aren't here to fix us. Ideally, working with tools that help us create more awareness of our full spectrum nature and engage healing at each or, or all of those levels, body, mind, heart, and soul. And then we have clinical tools and technologies that assess people's readiness for intervention at each of those levels. And we have systems of, and tools and technologies for healing at each of those levels. Then you massively accelerate the opportunity for people to become this I ideal summation and end product, was, which is a more whole human. And more whole humans are typically more aware, self-aware and aware of others and in compassionate landscapes, understanding the importance of sustainability and reciprocity, meaning like my actions affect the future. And it's a respectful consideration to make sure that I'm leaving my home, my environment, my community, the world itself in a better place than I found it. That's just respectful communication. And oh, by the way, that's also genetically advantageous. Mm -hmm. But we as really creative humans caught up in this really busy um, acquisitional construct of success in the Western mind are intelligent, but I'm not sure that we're very smart because we consistently as a group make decisions against our own survival. And thus, this is the conversation that we're having about the global planetary crisis. The earth is going to be fine, right? The earth has gone through something like seven great die-offs and mass extinctions before. The earth's going to be fine. I'm not sure that the human race is going to be fine if we continue at this level or this trajectory. Mm -hmm. So full spectrum healing or whole human experience creates more resilient, more compassionate, more of service humans in the world here to do what they're here to do. And all of that usually leads to more health, happiness and longevity. So ideally, we're taking this multidimensional approach in this view of an accelerated medical paradigm where we have really amazing tools to get to the deeper areas of healing um, and go through a transformational process. It's essentially like that, that, that process that the caterpillar goes through in becoming a butterfly. I don't know that the caterpillar has not any idea what it's going to be like to be a butterfly until it happens. <laughs> so kind of like we might not necessarily know what it's like to be a a full spectrum or whole human until we go through our own process of transformation. And that's where the benefit of the dark night of the soul actually can be really helpful for us to grow because it's our biggest challenges that become our best teachers. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's a great analogy too. I love in Alice in Wonderland, the, the uh, caterpillar that is getting, you know, formed into its chrysalis. And Alice says, you know, aren't you scared about what's going to happen there? He's like, I don't know. I'm probably just become something else. And then he yeah. you know, <laughs> later sees him flying around. Um, yeah. Such a good little teacher, that guy. Um, so do you think that everyone has trauma? Yeah, I would, I would say um, at some level, we all have some sort of trauma. Um, one of the things that has really piqued my interest lately is uh, past life traumas and um, past life traumas is something that interests me because it's something that we really have no way of proving and proving out scientifically and 
that makes it a little bit intriguing in my mind. But then we do know that we have epigenetics and we also have um, this whole quantum field. And whenever we start looking into um, these type of things, we can see very clearly um, in the research, people, uh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Holocaust survivors have changes in epigenetic markers. Um, so we, we know that our traumas can be passed on. And I think that the way society lives today, especially Western society, where we encourage a stressful lifestyle and we encourage um, people to lean away from uh, self-understanding and to pull further and further away from that, or at least we have certain cultures within our society that, that encourage that. And I think that that's, you know, a lot of the big driving factors that we see in people's health and demise, demise and health right now is this, um, you know, these cultural drives that the more stress we put on our body, the better. Um, or the more we block things psychologically and we don't address them, the less that we uh, become uh, understanding of self, the better off we are has really, really driven us down the wrong road. And I think that, you know, the basis of, you know, all of this is traumas that we're trying to hide, we're trying to get away from, um, or we don't really want to deal with. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's the root cause. Or if it's not the root cause, it's what's keeping them there mm -hmm. and not allowing them to heal. Yeah, that's and just to kind of unpack what epigenetic inheritance is for anyone that's not familiar because it's not a very mainstream concept. Um, it's essentially you know, stress markers that are changed in your DNA that then wherever you propagate and have offspring, then those offspring have the same stress markers and so forth and so forth. And I believe I'm probably going to get this kind of wrong, but the one of the experiments I remember reading about, I think the first one that really um, got people on board with epigenetic inheritance was, uh, I think lab rats were given, um, every time that they went to eat or drink, whatever it was, uh, there would be the, the taste of lemon, like, and then they would get shocked. And there would be other food elements in there that did not have the taste of lemon, and they wouldn't get shocked. And obviously, after a period of time, they stopped going for the the lemon-scented food and started going for the regular food. And then uh, the, their those those mice, their offspring, uh, would go whenever they would go to eat. The scientists would even if they sprayed a chemical scent of lemon into the chamber, they would not eat any of the food. You know, something like that. And I know that the details of that are probably a little sideways because I'm just trying to deep pull from my memory. But the notion that in life as a human being we would we could experience something traumatic and then therefore that would be kind of repressed and integrated into a ne in a negative way into the psyche, into the DNA, and then therefore pass forward whenever that individual gives birth. Um, so question for you, Joshua, um, can that work in the other direction? Say you, this is almost you know, in a Buddhist idea, almost like turning poison into medicine. Say you inherited a bunch of nasty stuff. If you, you know, in your DNA, if you did a bunch of work in, in your lifetime, um, to correct those things, would that epigenetic inheritance shift to uh, a more positive role as a way from this, this negative role? 
yes, I think I think that definitely the research and um, the research is definitely starting to prove that out. And I think that this, you know, as you asked Dan about, you know, his vision of a full spectrum uh, human, I think that the that is kind of my view personally of probably a full spectrum human is somebody who's gone through and made the lifestyle changes and um, mindset changes to be aware of themselves, to be aware of their breath, to be aware of their mind, to be aware of what they're eating, uh, what they're consuming, what's around them. Um, I think all of those things are really the, the key factors to help resetting these epigenetics and then teaching their offspring, um, you know, these cultural changes that we need to make. It's, it's like obesity. You know, we have, yeah, there's markers that definitely will quote unquote be obesity genes. Um, but it's the cultural things that, that set off those genes and then you say, well, is it the the family environment that you know what they're cooking, um, or what it, you know, why specifically is it that's triggering these genes? Um, but the mindset of if you go back and you were self aware and you started bettering your diet and changing these things, you can turn off genes just as easily. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you, especially if you're going to be having children. You know, you owe it to your offspring to start being more aware of your own health and your own well-being. One of the things that we look at, like prenatal vitamins, the, the thing about that is they're, they're prenatal. You should be taking them prior to conception so that your body's in a healthy space, so that the, the baby has the most um, optimal chance of growth and, and survival. And the majority of culture views it as, Oh, well, I got pregnant. Now I need to start a prenatal. Um, that's, you know, doesn't really help a lot of these things like, um, folic acid. We know it have what, where you're at at conception is what really matters. And, um, you know, that takes awareness, self-awareness and self-discipline. Yeah. I think it, it seems to be pretty agreed upon at this point that the outcome of the individual is, is equal parts, nature and nurture. You know, and I think a, a great thing for us in this time of the, an overabundance almost of information in a lot of ways is to recognize uh, what elements of our nature need our nurturing. Because each of us are born with a different palette of genetic you know, predispositions and, and recognizing what those things are and then working, as you said, to work with them to improve them, I think is an interesting and a useful thing that we can be doing. Mm. Yeah. And this is part of our, our, the the core of our personal empowerment is the willingness to use a really uncomfortable situation as a growth opportunity. And like Josh is describing the, the ability to lean in and the willingness to lean in and look at it, become a student of it, participate with it. James Hollis is a Jungian analyst, and he's fond of saying, when we can turn our traumas into this question, what's for me to learn here? What is, what is for, what's the task at hand for me to engage? Then I, I flip 
the internal narrative from victimization into participation. And that can be a very much a learned trait. And your, your question, your last question is a really good one. Okay. So if, if epigenetic phenomena and learned behaviors transmitted, then that can go in both directions. Learned helplessness can be transmitted genetically into the future generations, just as learning styles can be. And so if you take two, so you gave that, that example of the rats with lemon. Also, there's a really good study with rats learning. You take a control group and a study group and the study group, you, you teach them uh, more efficient ways to run a maze. And then that group has babies and those babies are tested with the control groups, babies that never learned how to run the maze and the babies from those that learned how to run the maze will run it faster inherently with ever with never direct teaching from their parents. It's just inbred. And so it goes in both directions. And when we have the opportunity to do that, and when we do our work on our own, sometimes the trauma didn't start with us. It might've been transgenerational trauma from our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents. And think about the world that many of our grandparents and great grandparents lived through world war one, world war two, massive famine, pestilence, scarcity, trauma. And if they haven't taken care of it, because maybe they weren't, they weren't taught to do that. They didn't have the same access to the tools that we have now. They didn't have the internet and the availability to understand things from a different perspective. They were just doing what they knew how to do, which is oftentimes keep a stiff upper lip, head down, do the work. And that, yes, they taught us discipline and fortitude and, and hard work. And now we have the opportunity to learn with respect of what they've taught us in the hard work arena to show up and do the hard work and also to do it in a way that we have tools that can accelerate that level of healing, recognize that it didn't start with us, but we have the opportunity to change it so that the coming generations don't have to carry the same burdens that I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. that my, and that our ancestors do like this can be an inflection point in human history where we really start to unravel and, and release that transgenerational trauma from propagating into the future generations. I completely think it is, man. You know, one of the things that continues to come to my mind, and this almost sounds like a pun, is that our great luxury in this, you know, in 2019, 2020, is this wealth of potential mental real estate. Like, uh, the previous generations that you mentioned, like most of the time, of course, they were just trying to survive, you know, especially if you go back more than 100 years ago. I mean, that was number one. And like, uh, you know, our bodies and our it's not really about being happy or having things or being comfortable. It's about not dying, you know. And we're in this point now where we have, you know, food delivery services and uh, paved roads. And, you know, I, I think it's what less than less than 200 years between the first paved road and the iphone you know i mean you think it's just r- ridiculous like in in bristol there's some some person figuring out how to like hey we can create pavement and then just like in two lifetimes then it's like you've got someone that's using google maps <laughs> you know what i mean it's just an absurd evolution of of technology so we have this incredible wealth of of mental real estate which is allowing giving us the space to be able to think about these things and begin to address them it really feels like 
we are uh we're fighting or clawing our way out of the chrysalis right now and we're we've all we're in the process of becoming these possible uh caterpillars and then i mean uh, butterflies and there'll be something after that that caterpillar will then you know transmutate into something that we can't imagine probably a 5d uh (laughs) caterpillar um i think there's five ketamine clinics opening now or have opened over the last year or something like that this is becoming a, a massively um popular and well integrated it seems thing in our culture at least in areas like austin or like uh colorado do you imagine in uh the future you know five ten years that there could be something like ketamine starbucks clinics where in not in the casualness of that but in the availability and accessibility and cost i think that has a strong potential to head in that direction mm-hmm. and Part of that's because we continue to try and maximize the um, the capitalistic profit margins in new novel technologies. And right now, in the medical arena, there are very few technologies that are at that are getting people's attention as much as psychedelics, mm-hmm. and that have as wide usage and wide availability for support and fairly high success to fail ratio. So it's exciting. I think a lot of people are going to jump onto it. I think you're going to have a lot of venture capital firms that want to open up neuro spas and these more mental suites um, in shopping centers and strip malls and start putting them on every corner. I think that's going to dilute the efficacy significantly because it's hard to scale out that degree of humanistic service in mass at a low price point. Because mm-hmm. that's the same mentality that believes that the medicines are going to fix us. Medicines aren't here to fix us. Medicines are here to interrupt old patterns so that we can see more clearly what is our work to do and how to move forward in it in a good way with the support that we need. So ideally, ketamine clinics have excellent degrees of preparation and integration. They have a multidisciplinary team that's working with people from everything like Josh Minton around nutrition and lifestyle factors. How do they live their lives well to unravel the tension in their nervous systems and become more personally empowered to do the work they're here to do, as opposed to continuously needing to reach outside for something else. It's similar to a polypharmacy model that believes that medications are gonna fix the solution. They're just tools to help give us more agency and space and resource to, to enact what we already know that's inherently right. We can't, you, you can't sidestep basic physiology mm-hmm. people need to be able to sleep well eat well move well celebrate well have sex well you know the, the things that build the hormonal optimization and neurochemical optimization decrease the likelihood for chronic inflammatory conditions and if you're going to keep sitting on the couch for 16 hours a day eating hohos thinking that ketamine is going to fix the job you're going to be in for a disappointment and that's not to make that previous level of thinking wrong. That's not a judgmental situation. I've certainly been in 
in different states of consciousness. And my life has been irreparably changed for the better through the medicine path. And if I look historically at what my line of thinking was 20 years ago, it was very me, mine, and I oriented. <laughs> it mm -hmm. was very, it was very in the immediacy of trying to gratify my own ego needs. And through uh, experiences of personal development, we start to believe and, and, um, actually test out new theories and see the evidence of the fact that it's more fulfilling to have an us and a we kind of orientation and to be more communally based and more compassionate in our hearts and to actually get off the couch and move and be active and do the reparative work in our own relational experiences, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, our relationship with the planet, our relationship with source, God, creator, name of a thousand names. <laughs> All of these relationships are getting repaired through this work. And okay, great. What do we do with that privilege that we have? Right, right. That's the mental real estate. That's the privilege. It's like we can we can do this. Um, so one other interesting barrier that I'm curious about your takes on is, you know, it's easy for people like us three and probably most of the listeners of this podcast to to forget, you know, because we're all in this familiar space uh, of talking about things like ketamine therapy or psilocybin therapy. But there is this huge, you know, probably the majority of people still are working with this um, characterization that's a hangover from the 1960s and 1970s of that, you know, a psychedelic will make you lose your mind or make you crazy or something like that. Or, or that you'll even, you know, I, I heard uh, Richard Dawkins just in the last uh, today, as a matter of fact, talking about he had never, you know, even as one of the most renowned scientists that's ever lived, I would say, uh, or, you know, popularized scientists. Um, he said that he's never tried any uh, experimentation because he was scared that he might jump out a window or something, you know. So you've got someone like that that is um, that familiar, even still holding on to this um, this old idea. How do you all see that beginning to shift away from the, the kind of cultural consciousness? And I feel like it's happening somewhat, but... Uh, in a major way, do you think it will be just experientially data-based type of uh, examples that will come over time and more people that are public figures absorbing and, you know, speaking on behalf of these changes? Or how do you all see those fears and that, that whole Hollywood idea, uh, and, and also, you know, it's largely misinformation, uh, how do you all see that being uh, dealt with? I think it's very clearly getting played out in the research. Um, for me, I was a, a very large skeptic. Um, and the more and more I dove into the research, the more I realized that um, my skepticism was, was due to my ignorance. Um, and now whenever you know, some of the latest research is showing that different psychedelics are causing uh, growth in synaptogenesis, which is just absolutely amazing um, to be able to see the connections between neurons grow based off of, you know, some of these psychedelic medicines that have been really, you know, demonized by you know, government powers and media. And, you know, 
a lot of these things that led to their demonization is the quote unquote bad trip um, is, is another thing. And I think that the more these substances are used in controlled environments and controlled set and settings um, with, you know, trained therapists to help unpack um, the traumas and stuff that may be brought up on a quote unquote bad experience. Um, those are oftentimes the most beneficial experiences for patients uh, is to be able to work through those really tough traumas so that they can um, heal from it and move on. And um, we see that, you know, with ketamine especially. And I think that as we start to see more and more research and more and more legalization of different medicines, I think that we're going to get the the media, the um, general public are, are going to start having a different view on how these medicines can be utilized as medicine. Mm -hmm. So you both are the operators of Revive uh, in Colorado, where you deal with concussion, uh, stroke, traumatic brain injury, depression, anxiety, a lot of things we've been talking about. What are some of the more you know, exciting uh, things you're working with now, some of the most exciting results or um, transformations that you've seen? Well, um, <laughs> you know, we've definitely been seeing a lot of really exciting things. We've been um, constantly expanding over the past few years. We've been moving into um, a lot of well, we're using transcranial magnetic stimulation and um, ketamine uh, and different types of therapies to help with anxiety and depression and seeing um, just absolutely phenomenal results. Uh, the average patient and depression scores are seeing uh, between uh, a 60 to 65 percent reduction in depression and anxiety uh, over over two weeks, which is uh, 10 treatments over two weeks, which is um, really phenomenal to see those type of results. And then whenever we're doing uh, three to six month follow ups, the actual depression scores continue to go down, which is uh, even more amazing that we're causing a pattern interrupt, um, resetting the neurology to get the brain firing appropriately. And we're seeing continued results um, ongoing after the patient leaves. And then, um, you know, we've been moving into the world of VR and different types of technologies, um, getting patients more ambulatory, getting patients up and walking, uh, whether that be from a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. Um, we've definitely started dialing in um, really nice protocols to help up-level the person's physiology, um, help increase different types of growth factors um, such as BDNF, uh, brain-derived neurotropic growth factor, um, and different things to drive synaptogenesis. So whenever we actually do the neurological uh, stimulation, where we have the metabolic factors there to really help drive and up level that. And then also looking into cellular therapies like exosomes and stem cells to really um, change the cellular structures and the scaffolding for um, especially the central nervous system. Hmm. That's all exciting. I, I truly feel like you two fellas uh, are, of course, amongst many that are doing great work, but are truly 
at the the leading edge of some of the most important work uh, in our time. So thank both you guys for coming on the show and sharing your uh, your insights and your knowledge and also what you're working on at Revive. And uh, yeah, thank you guys. Mm. Thanks for having us on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great to be with you again, Corey. I look forward to the next time. I know there will be one. <laughs> Without a doubt. 